What's up, podcast listeners? It's your host, Rafael Matuszewski, and this is episode 273, I think. Don't know, I'm losing track now, but we got Brian Carroll. I'm super pumped to share this episode because he was the guinea pig for the book Gift of Injury with Dr. Stuart McGill. He is a world-class powerlifter that basically destroyed his entire back and him and Stu teamed up and got him out of pain. So we kind of hit that in that in this episode and share his journey and talk a little bit about powerlifting, movement mechanics, everything you can imagine about how to get out of pain and move properly and lift heavy shit. So this was a match made in heaven of an interview. So without further ado, here's Brian. Hello, boys and girls. Welcome back to another episode of Cut the Shit, Get Fit. I'm your lovely host, Rafael Matuszewski, and joining me is a legend. Today, we have Brian Carroll. Say hello. How's it going? Thanks for having me, sir. It's good to be here. No problem. Um, so I like to start the show off with really easy questions. So the first easy question is, what do you got planned for the weekend? Uh, I am going to train light because this weekend is a deload, so I get the group group of guys I train with together on Saturday morning we squat and we deadlift but every three or four weeks we deload just to let our bodies adapt and recover and we'll talk a little bit about that more when we talk about 1020 life but um, other than that I might do a little bit of fishing okay and and uh, church on Sunday so nice. uh, and then football football tomorrow and Sunday nice um, so second easy question what is the current book you're reading or listening to oh okay good um, the book I'm I'm trying to get through right now is Super Training, the newest version. Okay, cool. It, it's long. It's a lot of material. Each page is like a foot tall, and it's small print. There's a lot in there. Okay. Do you tend to only read stuff about like training, or do you kind of alternate between different genres of books? I read a little bit of everything. Okay. So last year I read. I didn't. I'm not one of these. Uh, readers that read a thousand books a year you know some people read one book a day yeah when you talk to them they tell you what they do is they just skip to the main idea on each page and just go right through it yeah i read books and i try to absorb everything i can have you met people like that that just say they get one thing out of each page and they yeah. get through the book an hour basically yeah, yeah. I, you're missing a whole bunch of good stuff in some of these books for sure uh last week i focused on some personal um I, I just work it on myself, like mm-hmm. uh, emotions, and um, just working on, on on being more controlled of my emotions and, and having healthy boundaries. Yeah. So we're, you know you know focusing, not worrying, but focusing on having healthy boundaries in place, so you don't just run yourself ragged and overcommit to everything. And that's yeah. that was a problem. So I worked on some uh, you know personal stuff last year. So. About five or six books that I read were about working on my insides instead mm-hmm. of outsides. Yeah, it's interesting because, like, as a coach, like, so, so many coaches kind of get caught up with, like, reading the, like, latest book about whatever training or whatever Stuart McGill's coming out with. But, like, they kind of leave a lot on the table when you don't read those personal development books because a lot of it can relate back to, like, how you train, how you run your business and everything, right? Like, personally, my favorite book is Essentialism and... Like, that just taught me, like, if it's not, like, a hell yes in anything you do in life, it's a no. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. I, I've, I've heard that. Um, 
you know, said a few different ways, but that was the word I was looking for earlier. Personal development, the phrase yeah. I was looking for. That I couldn't think of it for anything. It's all good. Um, but the book that I was reading last year is called Boundaries. Okay. There's many versions of it, and it's great. It just shows you that you're not obligated to, to bend over backwards for people that aren't planners, basically. Okay. And, you, and you can help people out, but you don't want to overextend yourself to the point of where you get mad at yourself when it's someone else's problem. Mm -hmm. You get mad for saying yes at yourself, and you just beat yourself up over it instead of putting a healthy boundary there and saying, no, I can't do that, or no, I won't do that, yeah. and then letting them deal with it. You sit, and so you taking on the problem and making it your own. Yeah. Um, so the next easy question, the last one, is what is the current TV series you're watching? I like this question. <laughs> um, we just switched over to YouTube TV, actually. Oh, so interesting. So I'm starting to get used to that. It's a little bit cheaper than, say, Direct TV or um, your local cable provider, but I like it because you can pretty much select the channels that you that you want. Mm -hmm. You're not flipping through, you know, the menu on Direct TV or whatever. Yeah. Just it has algorithms that suggest shows to you, and football's always on, baseball's already on. So I'm not watching a series, but I'm gonna watch the World Series. Okay. Fair uh, enough. The last one that I watched, uh, last series that I watched was actually Nurse Jackie. I've never even heard of it. Yeah, it's on Netflix. Uh, it's about a nurse who's an opiate opiate addict. Hmm. It's pretty the functioning addict. Yeah. So there's a lot of those out there, right? So um, it was a pretty good series. But if I can just answer that question with my favorite series of all time, okay, it would either be out of Banshee. Have you seen Banshee? No, not at all. Banshee, the Cinemax original uh, show. Okay. Great show. Far fetched, but it's great. And then HBO's The Wire. Okay. Fair enough. Those are two really good shows. One, Banshee's about a uh, a sheriff in a small town in Pennsylvania. And then uh, The Wire is about the um, the projects and the drug dealers versus mm -hmm. the cops. And it shows the good and the bad on both sides. It's really interesting. Fair enough. Um, yeah, like for me, like if I had to choose an all-time favorite TV show, like I like I love Dexter. Like the idea oh, yeah. of like the writers sitting down and creating that character, I'm like blows my mind that they came up with that. <laughs> yeah, it's really well done, and I hated that sometimes he didn't have those. Uh, he made the wrong choices and got some people close to him killed. Yeah, yeah. when he killed the the Trinity Killer, it cost yeah. him his wife. When he didn't kill whoever it was that came back and killed Deb, right? Yeah. He made bad choices there. Hey, yeah, for sure. He had mercy on people and it cost him. Yeah. He needed better boundaries in his killing. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, let's get this show going with a little intro of who you are, what you do, and how did you get into the industry in the first place? Okay. So, I, I professionally power lift. Uh, I did my first bench competition in 1999. So it's been right at 20 years. And uh, can you hear me? Yep. Oh, okay, it looked like the microphone went, it said off. Okay. So I started powerlifting in June of 1999. I got into it really serious around then and started doing full competition meets, which is squat, bench, and deadlift um, in 2002. And from 2002 up to 2006, in that short amount of time, I set my first open all-time world record. And so what that means for the audience that don't quite understand the terminology of powerlifting and world records is regardless of the federation or wherever it's done, it's the most ever done 
in the open. So I did my first one in 2006. I did another one in 2011. And uh, I've hit totals of 23.76 at 220, 26.51 at 242, and 27.30 at 275. And I'm still competing currently. It's been about a year since I've competed. Uh, right now, a lot of my focus is on helping people that are back injured, that are power lifters and other strength athletes. And I have my own gym in my garage. My wife gave me the three-car garage. I converted it. Uh, we got two minor lifts in there. We got two bench competition bench presses. I got 20 different bars, all the ones using competition and the specialty bars. 400 pounds in chain, seven pairs of 100s, dumbbells to 175. So I got everything that you could possibly need there. And so um, I train and see a lot of people here at the gym. And, you know, of course, my hobby is powerlifting or my passion. And uh, I've written a few books, so I started writing my first book in 2013, and uh, written the book 1020 Live, and then redid a second edition. The first one was released in 2014. The second edition was released in 2017. 2013, I wrote a book called Cutting Weight, and it's a book about shedding water weight to come into weight class competition sports. So I, it's a quick, quick little book, about 35 pages, a new book. And then, as you know, Stuart and I wrote Gift of Injury and released it in 2017. So uh, that's a little bit about me. So when my wife tries to explain to her friends or coworkers what I do for work, she's, she has to come up and ask, what do you do again? I, but, excuse me, I have my hand in a lot of different things. I do coaching, consulting, I travel to see clients, I power lift. Uh, right. So I do. It just depends on the day, really. Yeah. So I'm gonna try to like unravel all of that and kind of start with like, how did you get into powerlifting in the first place? Like, what about the sport made you like, man, I really want to do that? Well, I like the fact that you just go up and lift the weight, and you don't have the um, subjectiveness of bodybuilding. Mm -hmm. I, I I played around in bodybuilding a little bit and. You know, if they don't like the color of your tan or the way you do your front double biceps, they might just ignore you. You know, a lot of it's your first appearance that the judges see. If they don't like what they see, that they get distracted and look on towards the next, per the next person. So I was always strong as a kid. I benched uh, 350 my senior year, benched 315 my junior year. So I was always lifting heavy. So I kind of thought it was right up my alley. So I was still in high school when I did my first competition and uh, kind of jumped into it last minute and fell in love with it. Awesome, yeah. Like, did you have any, like, coaches when you first started, or was it kind of a thing where you kind of self-taught yourself and then seeked out a coach? Uh, a little bit of both. I had okay. mentors in my life when I was 16, some people from the gym that kind of took me under their wing, and uh, they showed me to do the compound movements and then save the, the, the frou-frou stuff for the assistance work and do that afterward. So I had some good good pointers right away, but I still had to make a lot of mistakes and, and get with pe people that knew more than I did. And, yeah. you know, it's like with anything in life, it's, it's about learning and making mistakes, and you tend to learn from mistakes more than successes. So I certainly made my share of mistakes, and uh, it's, it's gotten me to a pretty good point, but it wasn't always a smooth path yeah. to get where I am right now, pain-free and, and all that stuff, which we'll, 
which we'll talk about, but I made a lot of mistakes and really hurt myself. Yeah. So now this is kind of a good segue to get into the next question of, like, if someone was just starting out in powerlifting, and I, I see it a lot of times in, like, you know, our circle of coaches who want to get their clients lifting heavy and everyone goes kind of to the deadlift and like I'm, I'm kind of interested in your approach of like if someone came to you and said hey I want to start powerlifting for the very first time what's kind of the, your thought process of getting someone ready for the first time ever oh so there's a lot of things so first I would take a look at them and 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 do an assessment so I'd look to see what their uh, strengths are, what their weaknesses are. If someone comes to me and wants to learn how to squat or squat competitively and they can't stand on one leg for 10 seconds, we're not going to squat. So we got to regress them. Whereas some people can go right to a goblet squat, right to a front goblet squat, and they have a good uh, mind-muscle connection and, uh, and, and patterning when they're, when they're lifting. That person, then we advance a little bit more. And the problem with just throwing someone under the bar that doesn't have seasoned uh, lifts is, uh, you know, they, their body is not adapted for load. So a lot of the time they go too heavy too quick, and then they end up getting a herniated disc with some implant fractures. And it's very, very common. So Stu's big thing is uh, when he talks about, you know, he talks about personal trainers that say, you know, you're not a good you're not a good athlete until you can deadlift, you know, your body weight. But some of these people are trying to deadlift 225 within the first couple of weeks of deadlifting, and it hasn't given the spine and the and the other bones and joints, tendons and ligaments, uh, the necessary adaptation time to develop. So I guess that's a that's a long way of answering your question is I need to assess them. What's their injury history? What are they doing right now? How do they train right now? What are their capabilities? What are their deficiencies? And then we go from there. So yeah. some people it might be, okay, you can compete in 10 weeks with my guidance. Some people it might be like, you, you, you're not ready to do that right now. I can't really help you. Here's some things you can do to regress until you're ready. So it, it really just depends on uh, all those variables that I named and more than that. Those, yeah. those just came off the top of my head. You know, What's the end goal? Is it the power lift? Is it to be healthy? Because you, you're not really going to do both at the same time. If you want ultimate strength, you're going to sacrifice health and vice versa. Yeah. So now I'm kind of curious, like, what kind of assessments do you do for someone who wanted to start powerlifting? Like, do you kind of start them, like, okay, show me your back squat, and then do you kind of try to, like, break it down section by section? Like, what's kind of your process to assessing uh, someone to be ready for powerlifting? Okay. So it would start with just the, the eye test, seeing how their posture is. Mm -hmm. I might give them a core test or two. If they can't do a, a steady bird dog or stir the pot, then they have a core deficiency. Mm -hmm. So we'd work on that. But if I was just assessing the squat, someone said that, you know, I, I squat a lot and they have a, a sturdy core and they pass the eye test. I'd put them under the bar and, and look for certain things. I'd look for the bar placement on their back. Is it too high? Is it too low? How much are they leaning? How much energy leakages do they have? Are they spreading the floor with their knees coming from glute medius? Are they sucking in air and creating a proper abdominal brace? Are they walking out six steps back instead of two? There's a lot of things that I see and, and look for. Um, and one of the biggest is being stable and not having uh, one of those slinky spines that you see some people have that are all over the place. So that's just a few things that I look at. They're, I'll do a hip assessment on them to see how wide they should be squatting. 
and the pelvic rock back that I'm sure you've seen Stuart McGill do. So those are just a, a few of the things, but a lot of it's the eye test. If they pass it from the eye test, then we can progress to the squat. But if they're coming to me and they're six foot four and they want to squat big, then I'm going to need to do a thorough assessment on them to see if it's even capable. If they're even capable of doing that, they have the hip structure. Um, yeah, and the injury history, of course, too. If someone has a history of a back or a hip or a knee or shoulder, that could impact what, what we have available to do as well. Okay. So it really just depends on the person. Now, like, now this got me thinking, like, what, what's your opinion about the whole butt wink thing? Like, people have been talking about it over and over again, but I'm kind of curious from, like, a powerlifting standpoint, like, do you care if someone has a butt wink or not? It depends. Some people can have butt wink forever, and they don't ever have any herniated discs. Mm -hmm. But there's tests you can do, the midnight movement with the bar on your back. You go forward and then back. If you go forward and back and don't have any pain, butt wink is not likely a pain mechanism for you. If you can't do that with just the bare unloaded bar, then butt wink is not for you. Okay. So it just depends. Someone that has a history of back problems, it might hurt them. Uh, it's likely to hurt them. But any kind of movement under load is not good. It's not good for your power either to have the, the pelvis rolling over and uh, having that looseness in the bottom. But again, it, it just depends on the person. It's it's I don't I don't necessarily think that uh, I don't see too many really big squatters have butt wing, but some people do and they're fine. Other people they can't they can't get away. Yeah. It really just depends. Okay. How resilient they are. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the other thing I'm kind of curious about is like how do you coach that abdominal brace? Because I find a lot, especially in like general population, when you know they go to the gym, they want to back squat or deadlift, they don't really know how to utilize their diaphragm to kind of create that canister effect. So I'm kind of curious of like mm -hmm. how do you coach someone to kind of teach that? So it starts with the handshake drill. I teach them how to post their lats down, their pecs down locking in their opposite side from the hand they're squeezing. I teach them to root into the floor and grab their toes into the ground and then corkscrew into the ground and get some rotation where their glutes are nice and tight and squeezed. And, and I teach them how to push out laterally to, to create that nice abdominal brace. And I teach them how to lift or shake the hand with their entire body. Okay. So once they have control over that, they get a little bit more of an understanding. Uh, for some people, it might be putting them on their back and teach them how to do it. I know Louis Simmons used to put people on their back and put a beach ball on their stomach, and whenever they raised the beach ball up, they were good. There's a, it just depends on the person because yeah. certain cues will not will not register with, with people, and then you know sometimes the more complex ones will, and sometimes the more simple ones will. But it, it really just depends. But teaching them how stiffness and not leaking air, not leaking energy, how important that is, is, is uh, what I try to get across to them. They have to be stiff. They have to be tight. Yeah. And uh, I might poke on them a little bit and teach them how to harden up laterally. But it really just depends. Yeah, because I find, especially with, like, general population, where you do, like, a simple breathing test where you have, like, hand on the chest, hand on the belly, and you're like, okay, now breathe for me. And, like, everyone does, like, does, like that big chest inhale. And I'm like, okay, now only use, like, your diaphragm. And they just can't, like get that mind muscle connection of how to use your diaphragm and i'm like man we have a lot of work ahead of ourselves yeah so that kind of that's a good uh way of uh finishing up my my um 
my assessment for somebody. It really just depends on how much they know and how much mm-hmm. they're picking up of what I'm putting down. Some people are going to need to regress and they're going to stay on a goblet squat or standing on one leg for a while. Some people will have back squat within a few minutes. I've had all, all kinds. And uh, the person that doesn't know how to stiffen their core and unleash their hips, they're, they're never going to be a good squatter until they learn that. So I don't want to put them under the bar until they learn that. And some people are disappointed. They think they're just going to come in and put a bar on their back and squat 500 pounds. But that would be um, be reckless of me to do that when I know that it's not the best thing for them. And you know maybe they go and do it and someone else puts them under the bar, but that's not going to be my responsibility. Yeah. So I'm also now curious too is like in your opinion like how important is like single leg strength when it comes to powerlifting especially in the deadlift and the squat? I like it. I like doing uh, unilateral work with mm-hmm. Bulgarian split squats, maybe a form of a lunge. I really like, and it's, there's a lot of bang for your buck, doing a one leg uh, Romanian deadlift with a kettlebell. Mm-hmm. You lock in the side just like the handshake drill. You root into the floor, and then you reach with the kettlebell to the opposite hand and knee. And it's a good balance test. It's great for the core. It's good for the glutes and the and the hamstrings. And it doesn't load the spine. So it's a way to do deadlifts for supplemental work to really uh, work on your balance and develop your hamstrings without loading your back down like you end up doing as a power lifter a lot. Mm-hmm. So anything you can do to use less weight and make it more challenging we like to do that for our systems work as powerlifters. Um, okay. Now, someone with a back history, they might have a problem doing anything that, that tucks the pelvis and rolls it under. Um, like a Bulgarian split squat, they might have trouble with that. But again, it's going to be personally dependent. Someone with knee problems might not do well with a lunge or a split squat. So it, it, it depends. But I, I prescribe a lot of assistance work. It's one side kettlebell pressing, bottoms up. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll do, you know, incline dumbbell presses, locking another side, pressing up, and then of course the lunge, split squat, one leg Romanian, things like that. I I, I like unilateral work. Yeah, because like uh, I work in a clinic and we get a lot of CrossFitters, and a lot of times when their backs flare up, like the first thing we tell them is like, hey, put away the barbell for a little while and just focus on some like single leg work. And even like after four weeks, they all come back and say like, holy crap, my back feels so much better, not you know lifting heavy with a barbell and just switching to like, yeah, single leg deadlift with a kettlebell. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, not loading it for a little while. A lot of people recover just from stopping what they're doing that causes the pain, even just for a little while. Mm-hmm. Now that's not a solution for everybody because you know for people with a serious back injury in the past like me, I don't even want to tread those waters to pick that gap. Yeah. Um, Since we're kind of chatting about injuries, I would love to kind of get into the Gift of Injury book that you wrote with uh, Stuart McGill, but um, kind of starting off with, like, how did you get introduced to Stu and kind of the whole backstory before the book actually came out? Yeah, so I um, met Stu in May of 2013, and I reached out to him via email I sent him my uh, MRIs and uh, told him what was going on with me. I went through, you know, the whole get shot, see physical therapist, have a consultation with the neurosurgeon. You know, I went and saw the orthopedics, and basically they all told me I was done. I'd never be out of pain. So I reached out to Stu and, and he said, "Yeah, come up, and we'll we'll see what we can do." So 
after doing the assessment and then looking at my scans, he he looked at me and said, I can get you out of pain or help to get you out of pain, but you have no athleticism left in your back. You're done. I said, well, you said you can get me out of pain just to let you know. And I looked at him and looked at my wife. I said, I'm going to get back to lifting once I get pain free again. And uh, of course, we went back and forth a little bit. And uh, he ended up saying, okay, let's get you out of pain. Then you come back in six months. And who knows, maybe you're right. Maybe we didn't write a book about it. And I held him to it. And uh, that's that's basically how the relationship started off. He he liked my case because it was a complicated one. It was a quite a nice uh, sacral sacrum fracture, and uh, I had no disc at L5 S1, L4 L5, and, and a host of other things with some shifting of my vertebra and, and you know some other implant fractures. And I had a lot of stuff going on, and a lot of it was my own doing, my own movement patterns. Uh, the way I sat, the way I stood, the way I bent, the way I stooped, and, and all that was further perpetuating my injury, not just the heavy lifting. So was the injury kind of like a buildup of like multiple things, or was it like you went for your deadlift or squat and you felt something go and that's how you injured it, or was it just kind of like a progressive thing? It was definitely cumulative. There was a few things that stood out as, okay, that that one of the things that hurt. Um, it definitely stood out. Uh, I fell in 2009 doing an obstacle course, and I hurt my back a little bit. And then lifting, within a year or two, um, it flared up again. And then by 2013, those four years, it had gotten to a point where it hurt me all the time. And each time I take a little time off from competing, I would get a little bit better. And then once I got to competing again, it would flare up and get even worse. So I got kind of desperate and I was trying to get surgery. I was trying to do all the wrong things, trying to stretch my lower back. I was, you know, doing weighted sit-ups and reverse hypers, everything that made it hurt worse. But I was saying, okay, strong core, it's going to heal my back. It's going to be everything that I need and that's not the case. But um, yeah, it was definitely cumulative and progressive over about four years. Okay. So what was kind of the, some of the things that Stu kind of got you started with? Because like I find like like especially here in the clinic when we have low back cases, like a lot of people are kind of almost scared to start doing movement because almost everything hurts. So I'm kind of curious to see what you kind of started with. Well, it was cleaning up my posture. My posture was garbage. You know, I'm looking at my phone, crunched down into flexion. The way I sat down I would plop because I'm being a bigger guy I thought that was okay when I tie my shoes I'd bend and deflection which was one of my pain causes pain mechanisms so I cleaned that all up first and foremost that was the most important part and I really like to hammer that home to people that come and see me or ask me these questions but the movement pattern was number one the second most important thing was getting out and walking two to three times a day for five to ten minutes and then uh, after each walk, I would do a few rounds of the McGill Big Three. Mm-hmm. That's all I did for a couple of weeks, and that was my that was my plan leaving. And then slowly added in some goblet squats, slowly added in some deadlifts with 135 uh, off the blocks that was just below my knee. And uh, then I added in some carries, some suitcase carries, which I love to do. Um, so you're just locking in one side and carrying again. I like doing uh, one leg and unilateral stuff. And then, of course, the bottoms up where you lock it in. 
and then you can do all kinds of variations of that. But that's basically what I started with, and then I went to, and then after a month or two of getting back to light deadlifts, goblet squats, kettlebell swings, and carries, then I progressed back to the lifts slowly, and eventually put a bar on my back. But it started with 55 pounds, 55 pound bar. I didn't just start loading up the bar. Mm -hmm. I did, you know, a couple reps and put it down for the week, and then came back to it the next week, and slowly started ticking it up and listening to my body. Yeah, it, 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 it's interesting, like, how simple all those things are, and most people, if they, like, glance that on, like, a piece of paper, they would just kind of like, oh, that's probably not going to work. I should just go get surgery. But a mm -hmm. lot of times, like, especially when I see patients that have, like, a flexion intolerant back, and, like, I stole this from Stu, like, just watching how they put their shoes on. And then yeah. now I have a better idea of, like, they go pick up a sock, they go pick up their kid, they unload the dishwasher, they're always in that flexion pattern. And I always teach patients, like, be really self-aware of what you're doing. And then the first thing I like to teach them is, like, how to hinge at the hips. And most yeah. people don't even know how to do that. And it's, like, such a simple thing. And that could go a long way keeping your back healthy. Yeah, or getting them out of pain. So a lot of people think they're using your knees is good. No, you want to use your hips, like you said. And they use their back, and they think they're using their hips, and they're not. Yeah. But one thing that I, I'm learning more and more is simple does not mean easy. Yeah. Because it's uh, monotonous. You know, when you want to train, and if you're dealing with CrossFit people, you know what I'm talking about. They're addicted to training. They love training. They love getting in the box and breaking a sweat and then going out to eat and having drinks with the whole crew. So it's part of their camaraderie. They love that community that CrossFit provides. So when you have a CrossFit athlete that you tell them they can't train for the next three weeks, minimum, they freak out about it. So at the end of the day, it's hard to, to you know restrain yourself, go on walks, do this silly core work and then slowly build it back, but that's the way you do it. And it just takes time. And it's it's not some magical wand that Stu waves over you or <laughs> you wave over someone or I wave over someone. They want that. They think there's a magical wand, but there isn't. It's about your movement. It's about putting more dollars into your savings account mm -hmm. and not pulling out more than you have. Yeah. So you invest by moving well. There's 168 hours in a week. If you're training 20, that's 148 hours that you're not training. Put dollars in your bank account. Don't move like an idiot out in the yard. Use your hips, lunge, squat, or do a Romanian deadlift with everything you do. Then you'll see you'll start developing more and more capacity. You'll be able to walk more. You'll be able to lift more. You'll feel better. It's just a, it's a snowball effect. Yeah. So how long did it kind of take you to kind of finally get out of pain? Like, was it a year? Was it a couple months? Like, what was kind of the timeline? It was really quick. It was only a couple of weeks where I was completely pain-free. Wow. And I was starting to progress in lifting. But I think that it was because my movement patterns were so heinous. You know what I mean? They were just absolutely terrible. So once I cleaned that up, I wasn't picking the scab 24-7. Mm -hmm. So it just gave me a lot of capacity right away. Add in bolstering my core and creating more resiliency there. Man, it, it happened pretty quick. Now, I was still a little bit hesitant when I started getting back under the bar and, you know, made it to two plates on the squat, but I just stuck with it, and uh, I saw Stu in May, and so seven months later, in December, I was back over 1,000 on the squat. Wow, jeez. But it was only just like 10, 15 pounds a week that I would add, and if I could take, if I could uh, have more, I would take it, 
if it didn't feel good, I wouldn't push it that week. Some training sessions, I'd say, you know what, I don't feel that good. I need more recovery, and I'd just go for a walk, do some core work, and call it a day. I, I think that people should not be married to their plans, no yeah. matter what it is. Sometimes you got to deviate. You need a plan B. And so sometimes I went with plan B, even though I wanted to train, that, that takes some discipline to say, you know what, I, I do want to train with my boys today. I do, you know, have these goals, but I'd rather take a step back now and be okay instead of having to take four or five steps back if I end up hurting something. So kind of going off of that, like how important do you think is kind of listening to your body? Because I kind of teach this to my clients that like, you know, if you're doing a set of deadlifts and you're on rep number four and that rep kind of felt weird or kind of off, I always encourage them to like just stop, kind of reset, refocus, and then go finish off your set. Cause I learned like early in my like lifting career, like if one rep feels off and I just like, whatever, it's not a big deal. And I go in my next one, it feels even worse. And then that's yeah. where I feel like, okay, I strained something, that's not a good thing. So like how important do you think is like building that body self-awareness or just like listening to what your body's giving you for like your lifting career? It's priceless. Yeah. Priceless. And it's something that some people have, some people don't, but I do think it can be developed and it, it takes being a student of the game. Um, you talked about people getting a little wonky with their rep sets on set four, then they go for a set five. The problem is when the form starts unraveling, you're creating bad ingrams. That's your default pattern for the squat or the deadlift or the bench. So I really, you know, in 1020 Life, I don't really advise high rep sets, anything over than over five. Mm -hmm. Me, I typically st stick to triples, doubles, and singles, no more than triples. But like I said earlier, I'll use my assistance work, my kettlebell bottoms up presses, my dumbbell presses, my rows. I'll do sets of 10, 15, 20 with that, but the stakes aren't nearly as high with the kettlebell or dumbbell as they are with 1,000 pounds on my back. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So. I scale it depending on what my um, requirements are and where I'm at in my training. But sometimes you do need to take risks, but they should be few and far between. And I don't advocate missing reps on the on the compound movements. It, it, it's going to failure. It's been shown to be good for hypertrophy. If you want to build muscle, you go to failure. You totally zap the muscle. But you have a CNS aspect with strength training. And if you push the body's limits too much, too often, not only will you start breaking uh, soft tissue, but your, your body will just start rebelling. And it will not like this heavy weight that you put on it time and time and time again. And it'll just shut down on you. You see the people get the shakes really bad and they say their warm-ups are heavy. That's because they've pushed the envelope too much and they haven't backed off before they're a fourth to. Yeah. Um, since we kind of brought up 1020 Life a couple times, maybe can you kind of give a brief summary of what that book is about and what made you want to write it and who's it for? The 1020 Life is for anyone that wants to build strength. It isn't for the competitive powerlifter. Uh, it can be used for that, and I do give off-season templates and pre-contest templates, but the premise of the book is to teach people how to program for themselves, how to coach themselves, and uh, I give them the tools to be able to do that. I, I, I have a weak point index in the book where it says, you know, you miss at this point, look at these muscles, try this assistance work. And I have it scaled all the way down for main work, main assistance work, and then little 
accessory things like carries and stir the pot mm -hmm. and McGill 3 and things like that, dumbbell presses. But basically I have a uh, set of parameters that I give people to be their own coach. So for example, a couple of them would be, we don't miss reps in training. Uh, you only do that every once in a while when you push the envelope. Most of your rep sets will be between 70 and 85%. You're not gonna have a ton below that. You're certainly not going to have a ton above 90%. That just helps to keep you honest because what I've found is the 70 to 85% range is where you make most of your gains with strength training. Multiple sets, multiple reps, your two sets of three, your three sets of three, your five sets of five, and that range is where people make the most gains and they're less likely to blow something apart. When you start getting over 90% and people are trying to do triples and doubles, uh, you're asking your body to be as tight as humanly possible for up to a minute at a time you can't really do that that's why you see people's reps start with good okay terrible works you know what i mean it starts getting because you go into a fight or flight and you do anything to get that weight up you go into default patterns that aren't good so that's kind of a few things that the books book, book focuses on i do have lifting cues in it i show people how to design their off-season, their pre-contest work, with their assistance work, and just talk about you know my history and, and the mental aspect of the game. And uh, if you choose to compete, I have a lot of parameters in there too. And uh, so the off-season works off of RPE, the rate of perceived exertion. So that way it's scalable depending on if you're traveling or you're at home. It works off that. And if you're trying to compete, doing pre-contest, I advise to go off percentages because you're going to need to be a lot more meticulous with the weights you lift if you're trying to peak for a meet. Whereas off-season, it won't matter quite as much. You're just kind of attacking your weak points. And that's another big premise of 1020 Life. Attacking your weak points, whether it's grip, whether it's stability, whether it's core strength, you name it. I, I kind of help you diagnose those issues. Okay. Um, kind of like more of a question for me, because like when I looked at the cover of the book with you doing a, a mixed grip in your deadlift. I'm kind of curious about your opinion about the mixed grip because like, I've seen some gnarly videos on YouTube of like guys trying to PR with the mixed grip and then their bicep tendon goes. So I'm kind of curious about your opinion about it. Uh, I've seen quite a few people blow their bicep off. Yeah. Um, deadlifting like that. Ideally, I would use hook grip, but I just can't, I can't quite master it. A lot of people use hook grip and they do well and they never drop a deadlift. So if I'm teaching someone from scratch, I'm teaching them double overhand and hook grip. Okay. But someone like me has been doing it for a long time and trying to convert over to hook grip. It's hard, the people that do it and they do it well, they have a good benefit. Their hands are like vices, it's locked in on there. But uh, for me, I try and then when I get up to about 600 pounds on the deadlift, I just can't explode. Hmm. I gotta squeeze it up. So if I'm deadlifting 800 and I'm only able to pull 600 hook grip, I mean, I, I've gotten to 600 a few times and had to stop because it just wasn't working for me anymore. I just couldn't squeeze anything heavier than that yeah. uh, off the deck. Okay, yeah. fair enough. So uh, for, if, if I'm starting with someone fresh, I would teach them hook grip. Okay. Fair enough. Um, so maybe one of the last questions, because we're coming up to our time here, but if you had to kind of go back in time to your 20s earlier into your career, like 
what would you change like if there was any like mistakes or like something you would change career-wise or something like what kind of pops into your mind that i like that can i can i elaborate just one more second on the mix grip yeah yeah for sure there's a couple things that you can do to help avoid a bicep tear now i'd be a fool to tell you that you can avoid all injuries in powerlifting because they're going to happen if it can go wrong it will it's just the way it works right but there's a couple things you can do, and one is not training your biceps too much, and, and just doing them a little bit. The, the tighter arm tends to bend a little bit, and when it bends, that's when the bicep goes. So the arm needs to be a, 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 a straight hanging, um, we call it, uh, arms need to be like ropes. So they just hang there, and they're just attached to the bar, and you just stand up with it. The people that start bending their arm, that's when the problems happen. Mm-hmm. Another thing that you can do is mix your grip. So if you're going right hand over, left hand under, you can flip it every few sets, and that way you're balanced out. And you're less likely to have that cumulative trauma in that bicep if it is starting to want to go. Mm-hmm. But those are a couple of things that came in mind. The biggest, the biggest reason why people tear biceps is they have that arm bend. Okay. And the arm bends and the stress goes on the bicep instead of the shoulder and the lat, and then you know, we know the bicep isn't as strong as, as those other muscles. Yeah. You know, if you keep it locked in and straight, you're good to go. So you can flex the tricep, which will help relax the bicep. Okay. On your hand. Yep. Interesting. Yeah. So um, what would I do different going back to my 20s? Uh, I would have taken my time a lot more. I wouldn't have competed so much. I know uh, when I was 26, 27, I competed nine full competitions in one year, eight, wow. eight more. 2008, yeah, and, and I'm still paying for the miles that I put on my body that year. It was just stupid. I, I, I wasn't thinking long term. What what good is doing eight meets in one year going to do other than just burn me out and hurt me? And the injuries started happening in 2009, you know, oddly enough, when I had that crazy year. But you don't know what you don't know. And so unfortunately, in your 20s, you do a bunch of stupid stuff. Um, I would have gotten more educated. I would have learned a lot more instead of just doing I would have asked more questions because I kind of thought I knew it all at times. And uh, the biggest thing would be taking a couple steps back and, and enjoying it. You know, when you're young in your 20s, you're kind of bulletproof in some ways. You can recover quick. You don't need as much rest and recovery. So I probably should have enjoyed my, my early and mid-20s a little bit more and, and seize the day and taken advantage of that time that I had. So I kind of had the outlook now um, making the most of every training session I have right now because I don't know how long I can do it for and still be injury free. Mm-hmm. Fair enough. Um, so maybe for the last question, if you want to tell the audience, you know, if they wanted to find out more about what you do, what your website is, your social channels, any other new projects, speaking engagements, or anything else you want to plug on my show, you can right now. Okay, thank you. Um, to find out more about me, you can go on PowerRackStrength.com. That's my website where I have a bunch of content that correlates to Gift of Injury and 1020 Life. Uh, I've been writing blogs on there for about five and a half years. So uh, my socials are Brian Carroll 81 That's YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. And uh, my book, 1020 Life, it's on Amazon and on PowerRackStrength. Then Gift of Injury is available pretty much everywhere. It's on Backfit Pro, on Amazon, and on PowerX Strength, uh, Kabuki Strength too. But um, that's really it. Uh, I like helping. Um, 
and I like speaking to people like you. So I appreciate you having me on your show and allowing me to kind of talk shop with you. And anytime you want to do it again, let me know. Awesome. So thank you so much for your time. This was amazing. Yeah, thank you. All right, so that's going to wrap up the episode with Brian Carroll. Hopefully you enjoyed it as much as I did. And a heads up, I'll be posting a link for the official Cut the Shit Get Fit sweaters because I finally received mine and I have approved the quality. So I'm going to post a sweet picture of how it looks and tag a little uh, link at the bottom of the post so you can purchase yours for this winter season and again heads up on the sale for my ebook the ironclad body training system for black friday i'll be posting more about that soon and again share 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 this podcast with your friends and family to grow this thing you guys are amazing thank you for the support Give myself a, no, give myself, give this podcast a five-star review on iTunes, Spotify, whatever platform you listen to it. And thanks again. Until next time, you guys. 